Welcome to Primal Anarchy Podcast, episode number 22. It is November 26th, 2019. It has been a minute since a podcast has been recorded. Life has been quite turbulent, but I do hope and I do believe that it is going to be settling down. And the good news is it is settling into a world in which black and green plays a much larger role. So uh, you'll be hearing more and we'll be talking a bit more about that. And as if you noticed, I said we. That's right. The podcast now has two hosts. You have me, Kevin Tucker, and with me, the one and only Natasha Tucker. Woohoo! Hi, everyone. Uh, Natasha shall be joining us from here on out, and I think the world is going to be a better place because of it. <laughs> I hope I can live up to that, but I am very excited to do this podcast with you. I am beyond excited. It is overdue, and we have a lot to discuss going into this, but... Yeah, it's been a little while since you did a podcast episode. Thank you. There's been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we'll leave the drama out of it. <laughs> we sure will. All right. So, uh, first thing first, let's talk about For Wildness and Anarchy. This revised and expanded second edition has finally come out. It came out uh, uh, two months ago. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around there. I have no sense of time. Mm-hmm. Become unglued from time. Uh, I'm extremely happy with how it turned out. Uh, it's much, much better book than the first one. If you have been listening to the podcast, I have been talking about it, I believe, two episodes ago, maybe three. I actually read the new introduction. Uh, the cover art is absolutely amazing by the talented Ellie Joe Gill. And, in fact, Black and Green just did our first full-color print, uh, T-shirt print of this cover art as well and there's that plus two new shirts that are on the web store now which is the updated blackandgreenpress.org so i don't think that i had mentioned that on the podcast since i had changed the website but blackandgreenpress.org was on a really shitty site forever uh and i have switched that and the websites are changed up a little bit but hopefully streamlining it a bit making it a little less confusing instead of having six sites that i had not been updating properly i think they're better linked now and you know for the people who have kicked the money and people who have helped out with all that that's been awesome it's been really great and black and green is a very expensive operation having a bunch of websites is an expensive thing to do mm-hmm. so anybody who's helped out with that very grateful for it and that's a continued expense so if anybody is able to continue helping out on the podcast page and on black and green press there's both there, both of them have support pages uh, that's a ways to donate, and that goes a long way towards helping trim down all those costs and trimming down the extensive overhead that black and green can entail, mm-hmm. which is good because we're coming up on 2020, which is the 20th anniversary of black and green. Uh, that's so insane, Kevin. We're going big. We've been talking about it a lot. 20 years is a long time. It is pretty considerable. In fact, we're doing this episode on November 26th and November 30th of 1999 was the day that I started Coalition Against Civilization, which was the forebearer to Black and Green Network at the time, then mm. became Black and Green Press. So we're really like genuinely in like the 20th anniversary of this whole thing. Uh, so when you started Black and Green like 20 years ago, where do you feel like you started it? Is it still doing the same thing that you set out to do 20 years ago? No. Things have changed. Things have changed drastically. Uh, in the world or in within Black and Green? 
both. Uh, I mean, so when Black and Green started, it was really, you know, the, the second wave of Green Anarchy came at the heels of the Seattle uprising in, in uh, November 30th and, of course, reclaimed the streets in mm-hmm. earlier in 1999. And at that time, it was like the global momentum had really picked up and shifted into the era of street protests and riots mm-hmm. that happened at that time, mm-hmm. in which, um, you know, we get down to Genoa, which I think was in 2003 when the... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if it was a prime minister. Maybe it was the, the secretary of defense or something like that for Italy. Mm-hmm. Personally blamed John Zerzan for the riots in Genoa. Wow. And at the whole time, the E11 and ALF had really been picking up. Uh, but at the time, Black and Green Network was originally founded because there were a hundred projects like Coalition Against Civilization at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the anti-civil milieu, the Green Anarchist milieu had just blown up. And there was mm-hmm. just shit going on all across the world. Things were being translated very quickly uh, in different areas, and we had groups all over the world. And so the idea of Black and Green Network originally was to be a kind of centerpiece or like a a funnel through which mm-hmm. all those groups could go and mm-hmm. try and kind of keep communications going that way. But then the Green Scare in all of its forms, nationally, like within the U.S. and beyond wiped so much of that out. Like, mm. the depression just changed all that. And so... So it just dropped off drastically? It dropped off drastically. And it's not necessarily that all these other things totally went away. It's just that the nature of repression kind of made it a lot harder to do some of the things that had been happening. Which yeah. was just, like, easily startup groups. Um, things and, tightened up considerably. Yeah. yeah. It, like, became more of a... Like, black and green became more of a liability for groups and individuals than mm-hmm. it became a a benefit for them. Mm. So, I mean, it was hard and it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a really good resource at the time. And especially now because the internet and social media have taken on such a different role. Right. Uh, to have had something like, you know, um, it wasn't uncommon in the early two thousands. If you wrote something, it can be translated into seven languages very quickly. And so like the original black and green network page, like just whatever language mm-hmm. was sent, something was sent over there was you wow. could have all those translations up in one place and now you know those things happen but they just don't have that kind of like central networking and the discussion and everything like that it's more of an individual base than groups right well there's so much more information out there like the internet is just filled with so many voices that can feel overwhelming sometimes but it's lost writers it's lost like people right. like it's just people posting things and then mm-hmm. it just feels like that that's something that shifted a lot too Oh, yeah. Like, it's even, more noise and less, like, focused content, I think. Yeah. And you get people get angry at me. <laughs> ask for more focused, like, like write something. And they're like, well, I wrote a post on Facebook. It's like, right. does it make you a writer? Like, it's not a cohesive idea that you can take and put into a different format. It doesn't make sense in print. Right. It's tricky if everybody has a platform that they can use publicly. Like, if everyone has a platform, it's hard to... It's hard to organize people into sort of like groups that might have more weight because mm-hmm. because collaboration is important, right? So like, but it's tricky to do that if everybody has their own individual platform that they can like voice whatever they want to voice. Which is also how anarchism in a lot of sense and a lot of these ideas, the green anarchist ideas and even anti-civ ideas have taken this insane turn where, you know, I mean, I, I would have, I've said it on the podcast, I'll say it a million times, I'll say it over and over and over again, like... 
being against civilization, you shouldn't have to specify that I'm also against fascism, yet all of a sudden you do. Mm. Like, fascism has crept into every single little, like, crack and, and nook and everything within any any spectrum right. out there. And green anarchy naturally isn't, and even anti-civ ideas are, are in no way, shape, or form exempt from that, which is a disgustingly sad truth. And even recently on the uh, Black and Green mailing list, I put a thing out, a uh, writing I had done, like a short write-up uh, about having to, the absurdity of having to specify being against fascism. Right. And I had a number of people drop off the list, and I had a number of people respond like, who are you to tell me to be against fascism? And it's like, okay, if you're an anarchist, like, there's a meaning behind this. Mm-hmm. And I think what ends up happening is that the internet bolsters these libertarian ideas. Nobody mm-hmm. can tell me what to do. Right. And so it's like all these people are coming at supposedly like anarchism or anti-civ from these very like far, far right, uh, like more libertarian ideas mm-hmm. of like it boils down to who can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. Right. And it's like it overrides the idea that there's any implication or there's any grounding for any of these concepts. So it's just like you can't tell me to be against fascism. It's like I shouldn't have to tell. Like how can you be in – anarchists and fascism could even exist in any way. I think part of the problem is like the term and the idea of fascism has like crept up on a generation that wasn't familiar with it. Yeah. Like if we're talking about like maybe our generation and the one below us, like that the idea of fascism hasn't like played into the world stage that we've been um at least in an obvious way that we've been interfacing with. Yeah. So now that that word is being used more and sort of like it's it's kind of like being redefined now, um, I think probably like shining, shedding some light on it, redefining it and getting people sort of like aware of the fact that fascism is alive and well. And that's part of the thing that we're constantly pushing back against. Right. Like civilization is fascism, basically. Um, that's really important to define right now. Yeah. And there's actually an interview I did with uh, Shane Burley, author of Fascism Today. Uh, that I have not transcribed yet. I haven't done anything with it yet. It is slated for Wild Resistance number seven currently, and Wild Resistance is the only black and green project that is like still a little bit on hold, and we're kind of restructuring a little. Um, it's still it's still there. I just the deadline was at a horrible time, and so things got a little bumped, and I just haven't sorted the mess yet. There's some if you have sent submissions if you have some contributions i have them sitting in my inbox unread and i just haven't gotten around to them yet nothing is dead it just temporarily on hold more news to come <laughs> there's sorry <laughs> there's been a little chaos there's been a bit of chaos a touch of chaos yeah a touch of chaos uh but yeah so the interview with shane um i call it fascism 2.0 and i think it's something that like within the anarchist world so much of this this entire discussion was sidelined for so long because everybody's like, well, what we're talking about right now isn't like textbook fascism. Like, this isn't Mussolini. Exactly. And I was like, well, that's because the platforms have changed. And if you're decentralizing power, you're decentralizing control on an international basis, then things are going to change. Right. I think it's really important to redefine fascism for people who are not really familiar with it and also talk about what it looks like now. Because we can't, you can't really push back against something that we don't, we don't, we haven't clearly defined what it is or what we're looking at. Yeah, and how it's changed. And Which how it's is changed. All in that Shane interview. Right. So thank you for reminding me that I need to transcribe it and get it out there. Which we will do. Quite important. Shall be happening. Um, 
But yeah, so real quick, just to finalize a little bit about uh, the For Wildness and Anarchy stuff, I know there are some people who were getting frustrated about not getting books in a timely manner. Uh, that was a nightmare. Um, I didn't realize I was going through Kickstarter while the campaign was going on, and I thought it was withholding addresses and information until the campaign was complete. And then the campaign was complete, and I went to fulfill everything, and I got a blank uh, file from Kickstarter. Uh-huh. Kickstarter had recorded zero information, and I sent out notifications on the Kickstarter thing, which meant that people should have been getting emails that the campaign was updated multiple times. I sent out emails through the campaign, uh, but I know that some people when they're using Kickstarter, they use like a secondary email or something like that. So people weren't getting the messages. I wasn't sure the best way to get a hold of everybody. And uh, it got down to the point now where it's like I've been talking about it a number of times, um, like social media, even the mailing list, and saying, it's like, I need your information. I have none of it. Like, I didn't lose your order. I didn't get it. Like, all I know is that there's a name or a guest or whatever information that's on this sheet that is not linked up to anything else. So like working from zero and having to piece it all back together and then also waiting to hear from people and getting emails or notifications from people using a different name, using a different account. It went a little bit wrong. It went a little time. bit wrong. Right. But what we need now is anybody who hasn't gotten their information to us to give us their information. Yeah. Right? You should have I have personally written I believe everybody and asked for addresses and stuff like that. So, like, oh, trust me, I want this thing. I want the debacle over. Um, the shirts finally did come in, as I mentioned. One the shirts the three, look amazing. One of three great new shirts we've got. Yeah. Um, They're so, so great looking. Yeah, they look awesome. Everything is ready to go. If you are waiting and you're sitting there stewing and getting angry at me, it's because I've been trying to get a hold of you. It has not been working and also moving forward, because we do have fundraisers that are going to be coming through. Um, now I know if Kickstarter is not recording that information, it needs to be handled at the time. Any other time I've done a Kickstarter and I've gotten the file and gotten everything done, I'm pretty good with with mailing now at this point. So it's like just I'll get it all done out out the door. See it done. And this time that did not happen, and it did not happen in such a way. That it has been <laughs> catastrophic. Mm-hmm. So, I apologize to anybody who didn't get it. Um, I'm doing my best and uh, hoping that, like, within a week, we can say the, the For Wildness and Eric Kickstarter debacle is officially done and over. Uh, and it's not an indication of how things will be going forward. I believe at this point we've got our schedules figured out. I think we've got everything mm-hmm. figured out as far as getting everything out the door again. Mm-hmm. There's, there's been chaos. some restructuring. Yeah. We're alluding to some very mysterious chaos and restructuring, but there's been a lot of uh, <laughs> upheaval. Yes. There's been lives blown apart. And, uh-huh. Um, yes. We've been figuring a lot of things out. Yeah. Having to jump ship and move things around. It's just, just take our word for it. You don't want to know. It's just been chaos, but the chaos is hopefully ending. The good news again, black and green. 2020 20 year anniversary we're fucking doing it we're okay. doing it it's going bigger than ever before yeah. it's time for black and green to really like step step forward yes and we can use 
all the help we can get. And I can't state this enough. I know I mention it on every podcast. I mention it all the time in mail. Like the old networks that were there when Black and Green started for getting information out, all that shit is bye bye. It's dead and gone. Right. Like, remember when you could go into a coffee shop and hang up a flyer and lots of people would look at it and you'd like have people talk to you about that thing and come to the event? That doesn't really happen anymore. No, days of yore. Days of yore. Long gone. <laughs> they're, they're a distant memory. But along those lines, it is very hard to get information out in a way that is effective now. Yes. It is getting really hard. It's, it's easy to get... At times, it can be easy to get people to repost. But I mean, again, I've mentioned it over and over again. There's issues with like the way the algorithms work. If you click and share things on social media, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people have done have shared black and green stuff on their personal Facebook page, but Facebook algorithm automatically suppresses all of that stuff. So it's like, even if you're sharing it, nobody's seeing it. And like, it's pretty fucking impossible to work with that. Uh, and it's really hard to get people to share and to be excited about physical books or physical anything really. Um, but that's what we do. And we do need to get people to be looking at actual books and not just like, it's the best way to ensure that they're not just reading a headline and mm-hmm. going to have a 200 comment thread based off of a headline and a presumption about what that headline may or may not mean. We want people to engage the actual materials. Why we do it. True. So we go through all this stuff. We want people to post about it or like to talk yeah. about it and to deal we with it. We want people to engage. Yeah. If you like the book, post a picture of the book. Like mm-hmm. don't, you don't have to just like share uh, but I mean, you know, granted, I'm talking about social media right now, but fucking tell people about it. Yeah. If you go to like to get books into a bookstore as a, I'm air quoting, publishing company such as Black and Green, it doesn't, we don't have access to the normal means of distribution that a lot of places would if right. they had money or if right. they were set up as a capitalist business, which Black and Green most definitely is not. Right. We don't have things like money we do have things like we don't have things like money we do have things like debt <laughs> but uh we do have things like passion we have plenty of passion uh-huh we have plenty of things to say uh-huh. uh and there's a lot more things to say uh but we we don't have the means of just like going out and pushing on all the bookstores and and realistically if i cold call or i email a bookstore and i'm like hey this is what we're doing you know these are the books we've got like try and get them interested places like a bookstore will get a ton of emails like that a day or letters or anything. Right. It doesn't mean nearly as much of them as having somebody who goes to a bookstore come in and say like, I'm looking for this book. Can you carry it? That goes a long way. If somebody requests something, it is an intrinsically different prioritization for anybody working as an independent bookstore distro to be like, Oh, this is something that people are looking for instead of me being like, hey, take a look at what we're doing. But along those lines, too, why are these books important, Kevin? I keep We keep talking about this over and over again because I keep saying, okay, 20 years. It's the big anniversary. Where is Black and Green going? Why is it so important that people are reading these books? Like, what? where are we going? Where are we going with this? It's These ideas have been around for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And you have been uh, so... Uh, important like in this whole work in the work in in rewilding in um in anarchism and green anarchism i mean you've really pushed the envelope so like where do you envision things going now that we're at this 20 year mark 
Like, what are you hoping to do? Why is it important for people to read these books? Like, what's going to happen, Kevin? Flattery aside, <laughs> thank you. Um, like, I mean, the, the thing is, is that, I mean, we do the work for a reason. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff. I mean, with Black and Green in the last two years, I put out three books personally. Um, I've got a lot of stuff in the works. I mean, like. Why do you do the work? Why do you write these books? Because this needs to be said. This needs, needs to be, to be done. We're talking about primal hierarchy. I mean, the, the basis of everything we're doing is it's not just like critique. It's not just like, hey, we're going to go throw shit at the wall. Precisely. This Take is a look an important at us. point. Take a look at us throwing shit at the wall and how great we are at throwing shit. Critique is a dime a dozen. Like, and, I mean, it's not that it critique has its place. It's not that critique doesn't have its place. Critique right. has its thing. But like, the reality of it is, is that the way that we interact with the world is through individual pieces. It's through a fragmented reality, and that is the epitome of domestication, as the epitome of how civilization works. You are permitted so much room within civilization to feel a sense of freedom by saying, I am against this thing, or I am for this thing. And what ends up happening is you can kind of pick and choose. It's like people saying, oh, I can take the best of technology and leave the worst behind. It's like, you can't, because mm-hmm. how does it all work? It's a system. It's a network. You right. can't just like pick things apart. You know what it's like? It's kind of like with little kids when you give them, you make them think that, that you're giving them the opportunity to make a decision, but you give them two options. So you're like, would you like a ham and cheese sandwich for lunch or um, a quesadilla? And then they think that they're making a decision, but they're not really. They're only like trapped within the framework of the choices you've given them. Yeah. That is like us inside civilization all the time, right? Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. It's all about faux choices. Right. But the thing about it is, is that the, the idea behind it, and I mean, it's it's kind of been coming up more and more and more. People are asking me, it's like, well, you still identify as anarcho-primitivism or with anarcho-primitivism? And it's like, I've, I've said before, I'll say it again, I'll always be an anarcho-primitivist. But what anarcho-primitivism has become within social media is unrecognizable because people have done the same thing they've done with everything else, which is they've anchored on all these like personal beefs and grievances mm-hmm. to try and make it something it is. So I see people being like, Anarcho-primitivism is for forest turfs or trans-exclusionary radical feminists. And anarcho-primitivists hate trans people and things like that. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? It doesn't like, work that way <laughs> at all. I was like, why would... Like, okay, one, you're talking about Derek Jensen, who has just done an interview with a white supremacist... Um, a white supremacist on a white supremacist platform. Right. Fun fact. Uh, but, like, why would that have anything basis on anarcho-primitivism? This guy's got nothing to do with it. Uh, I mean, I just, I can't identify with it, but I think what, it, what that pushed me to do, and that's what pushed, I mean, John Zers and I have talked about this extensively, the editors of Wild Resistance, we've all talked about this extensively, I've talked about this on the podcast, I'll continue to talk about it. Mm-hmm. It, it led mm-hmm. to a bigger question about, well, what is anarcho-primitivism? Mm-hmm. And anarcho-primitivism, to me, it, it has been a set of questions. Where does the origins of power lie? Mm-hmm. How did we get into this place? And I think that ultimately, at the end of the day, we have to accept as like, okay, we're done asking questions. I think we it's not that we're done getting information or like being challenged or anything like that. But like, you know, we don't have to play guessing games. We know that 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
it still goes back further and further. We can mm-hmm. still say it's like it's well, you know, anatomically modern Homo sapiens have lived as you know egalitarian societies, but then we can just look further back and see that one that line continues to go way back, right? Uh, like by leaps and bounds, but also earlier forms or earlier types of the Homo line or ancestors to us have also lived the same egalitarian right. anarchistic existence. We don't need to keep circling the wagons to be like, well, is civilization a problem? It's like, no. Like, you don't have to be like, this is like the same thing of being like, well, maybe climate change is a thing. It's like, we're, we're fucking past this shit. We don't have to keep going around in circles. Yeah. It's still fine to talk about these things. Yeah. But it's like, if we, especially people who have been sort of like, maybe like, I don't know what we, want to, what we want to call this, this movement or whatever for a while. Let's say you've been aware of these things for a while. We don't have to keep going back to the beginning. We can we can start where we are now. We yeah. can say, okay, we know these things. Now where are we going with this? It's like taking it forward, right? To the next level. And Instead removing, of circling around and around and around. And removing it from the philosophical realm. Right. This isn't an idea about like, well, maybe we could be this or this. It's like, no, you're born a hunter-gatherer. The way that you have evolved biologically, sociologically, physiologically... You're a hunter-gatherer. Like, every other aspect of society seems generally capable of accepting that, aside from some sociobiologists who want to, like, Steven Pinker and douchebags like him. Right. But I mean, there will always them. be people who have, like, differing opinions, yeah. right? I'm like, you can call them wrong opinions, but there will there always be people with differing opinions, and that's that's fine. Yeah, I mean, the president of the United States believes you're born with a finite amount of energy and that working out wastes it. <laughs> we don't need to take ridiculous things into account just because somebody said them. Right. But so, I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is that we are a storytelling animal. Mm-hmm. I mean, cultural materialist through and through. We do things because we, because it, ecology kind of determines it. Like how right. you live with the world, how you interact with the world determines the relationships you're going to have with it. But we're a storytelling animal. We're not right. harsh materialists. That's not how we interact with things. Nobody's ever saying... I mean, few people have said, but I mean, it doesn't mean it's less true. Like, we're going to war for resources, but we go to war for resources. We right. tell a story. Everybody's like, well, all war is about religion. No. Religion's a story we tell about why we go to war. Right. It's not the reason. Right. And, uh, like... And what has made us successful as a species, really, is being able to be creative. We're creative. I mean, we like to say that we're tool makers. I'm sure that's part of it. But really, what we're talking about is creativity. We're talking about stories. We're talking about the ability to move into any difference any situation and sort of like take stock of what's around us and integrate that into the way that we live and like we're constantly kind of evolving as cultures and people so i mean which i think is very encouraging and yeah. we're not stuck in something that's stagnant and already set we're, i mean it's... we're very able to like take in new information and change like as we go which many cultures have done around the world since the beginning yeah and i mean it's like one thing that's like it's easy to look at that too and say it's like we're adaptive and resilient to a fault mm-hmm. but we're adaptive resilient. I mean, like, we, we have yeah. the capability of all these things. But the problem is, is that we need a different narrative. A we're different a story. story. We're a storytelling animal stuck in one story, which is that civilization is here. Civilization will always be here. And it, it changes the way people think about it. And that's, like, such a massive thing that you and I have talked about extensively. And we've had a lot of interaction as people within this milieu who have gone out and spoken to people. All the time you get people like, well... New York City is where I'm at. There's no wildness left here. Right. New York City a few years ago had 500 citywide applications of glyphosate, like, just to maintain that shitty level of New York City. 
Right. Like the amount of maintenance that goes into maintaining this narrative that civilization is here and that's the only option changes the way people perceive it. And it's, it's, it's an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. It changes the way you are and changes the way you interact because you're like, well, this is what's here, so this is what I have to deal with. Right. It makes you not be able to see things from an ecological perspective. It makes you not be able to see the bigger picture. And the reality of it is, is that civilization is impossible. Right. It's mathematically impossible. It just free-falling and constantly picking itself up by the worst means possible. Right. It's held together with like chewing gum and string. It's barely held and together. And fascism. And absolute fascism. A hefty dose of fascism <laughs> and techno-fanaticism. For sure. Yeah. So like, the thing that it comes down to, to round this back, what's different is that there is a narrative here. There mm-hmm. is another story. It's not just a matter of being like, well, I have a problem with technology as this. I have a problem with that. It's like the entirety of it is an issue. Like the entire way we see and interact with the world is endemically driven by the domestication process, which is a constant and perpetual thing. Right. So the whole point is... It has to constantly be reinforced. Yeah. And this is one of the things, this is one of the main reasons by going, going behind that term primal anarchy. This isn't a philosophy. This isn't an ideology. This isn't some idea... This is an acknowledgement of the undercurrent of existence within this world. Mm-hmm. It goes back to Kropotkin. It goes back to mutual aid. Mm-hmm. This is the fundamental core of who we are as a species and how right. the world operates. And like until we start to see it that way, until we flip the way that we understand the world and flip the way that we're seeing all these things, then we're going to perpetually be stuck in this idea that the options presented within civilization are the only options. Right, which, which ties our hands... And it prevents us from actually seeing what's really going on. Yeah. Which also brings us back to, I asked you, why are we, Why should people read these books? Because we're trying to tell a different story. Yeah. We're trying to tell like an older story and a true story, more true story, and give it to people in a way that people can feel it yeah. and wake up. And these things have existed the whole time. I mean, like, oh, yeah. this isn't necessarily, it's not like, oh, this is different than anything Eric Capitalism no. does. John's been doing this for forever. And, There's but, like, generations of people talking about these things. And I mean, like, literally, I always I go nuts on the podcast talking about Freddie Perlman's Against History, Against Leviathan, which I always point out. People love to try and talk shit on me about human nature and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then they promote Perlman. Go read Against History, Against Leviathan again. Mm-hmm. He vehemently defends like, the idea of human nature, the idea that you were born this way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, he didn't use the same terms necessarily when it came to Hunter Gatherer and everything like that. But I mean, they were not absent. Right. Um, it just... It's the same kind of thing. It's like literally against history, against Leviathan is a narrative oral tradition of telling the story of civilization outside of history. So there's no places, there's no dates, there's no timelines, there's mm-hmm. nothing like that. Or there's no citations. It's just like, this is how the story would be told around a fire mm-hmm. by a really fucking good storyteller. Right. Cause Such an amazing idea. I can't even drop them. But I would drop the mic and say Perlman is fucking great. <laughs> Perlman is the best. When it comes to like telling that story, he's done it. And then we're just like, amplify that message. Like this is this is the thing. Yeah, we're trying to make a platform for other people to talk about it. We're trying to make a platform for it to have a space where we can talk about it, where we can start to like share these stories and hopefully move towards the idea that like we're not stuck in this. No. It is just like an abusive relationship. Someone is in an abusive relationship, one hundred percent, you feel like you cannot open the door. Right? You're mm-hmm. like stuck in this thing. It's how it's going to be forever. And then 
you know, to get out of something like that, it's like you have to get to the point where all of a sudden you realize, like, wait, I can open the door. That I'm able to put my hand on that doorknob and open the door, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the same thing with civilization. Like, here we are. We think we're trapped. We think there's no way out. There's no other choices. It's like something has to be the impetus to push you to say, oh, I can open the door. There are other narratives out there. It's like a blind spot that we have, you know? Yeah. And there have been some great people that were bringing into the fold on that, which I should say, just to, to roll ahead with some of the things that we are talking about doing in the mm-hmm. 20 years, uh, you will be hearing more podcasts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Many more. Many more. And we're going in a different direction with them. Oh, Natasha, what is that? Well, we're going to be having guests on to talk about things. You don't say. I do say. <laughs> and who is one of those first guests that I believe we're both extremely excited about? Well, who is one of those first guests, Kevin? I believe it's Shellis Glendening. I believe it will be. A person who has been exponentially influential upon both of us. Yeah, oh, for sure. And she she has, you know, talked at length about our... Um, relationship with civilization and how that's very much like an abusive relationship and it's um very much an addiction and it's like well okay how do we look at how do we look at that with um you know clarity and um figure out how to how to get ourselves out of it and help one another do that same thing yes and also i will say it again i will say it a million times i've said it in the book recommendation episodes and i've, I've talked about it many other times my name is shellis and i'm in recovery from western civilization mm-hmm. and off the map Absolutely. Required reading. For sure. I mean, really, like, all the ideas are there. Yeah. And she's been talking about this for a long time. Yeah, you can see a very direct lineage with her and Paul Shepard's work. Mm -hmm. It's like the big dogs. Mm -hmm. So she'll also be on, and there's a number of other people we're talking to that I'm really excited about, but we're going to start doing interviews. Mm -hmm. So there'll be more podcasts with us. Right. More podcasts of us with other people. Yeah. We're just going to keep the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we're also looking to expand, for lack of a better term, our networks. So, like, we've worked with some fucking killer artists. Uh, we're continuing to find... Incredible artists. Um, like, I, I have to say, I'm blown away by... For for being in the realm we're in as, like, anti-civilization, within the anarchist milieu, within all these different things, the talent that people have acquired and the talent that people have has been it's mind-blowing it's mind-blowing it is yeah so like i mean with mazatol number dives killjoy uh ellie joe gill dylan garrett smith there's a project i'm going to be announcing here shortly with tegan white who's mm-hmm. just amazing artist and i and uh eric jackamet who did the cover of wild resistance number six like even the people we worked with already have been fucking fantastic and i know some very fantastic writers, including my favorite writer sitting right next to me. Oh my god! But um, <laughs> you're too <there's>, kind. <laughs> there's been a lot of awesome people, and we want their. We want to find out what people are doing, what people are capable of doing. We'd like to do video. Um, we've been toying around with the idea of like graphic novels and things like that. Oh yeah, for sure, comic like, books, graphic comic novels, books. anything that like gets us out. We gotta get the fuck out of like this little spot that we've been kind of pushed into. It's yeah. Like, this I needs these... to get much bigger. Everything's got to get out a lot wider. Definitely. And I mean, I've been saying for a long time that I don't consider my own to be just anarchist for quite some time. Uh, and it hasn't been. And I've been getting more and more out there. But it's really fucking hard to get out there. So we need people to talk about it, get excited about it. That also means we need more formats. Posters. Right. Like, anything. Different kinds of books. I think we'll probably be doing... We'll be seeing considerably more fiction, hopefully. 
Well, you're writing some fiction now, which is exciting. (laughs) Surprise. You've got a great another novel in the works. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we have a lot of projects, like, in the pipe. Our our to-do list is extensive. (laughs) It is. It's it's a whiteboard with a lot of books on it, and occasionally groceries. Uh, Yeah, definitely groceries as well. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's there's a ton more that you're going to be seeing, but if you do any of these things, if you've wanted to plug in, and I know people have written me about these things before, and sometimes I remember better than others, but like if you've got skills, if you've got abilities, you can do video editing, you're an artist, you love doing this or that, writing certain ways. Get a hold of us. The yeah. end at blackandgreenpress.org. Again, that is the end at blackandgreenpress.org. Mm-hmm. Or through any one of the sites, those emails will all get to us. I am fairly obsessed with collaboration. I think collaboration is incredible. It, it makes, it takes like whatever your particular talents are and it like uh, explodes it tenfold, right? Like when you find the right group of people to collaborate with or the right person to collaborate with, it's a very powerful thing. And it builds community, it builds network, uh, which is very important, I think. And I keep saying to Kevin, I love what Black and Green is doing and has done, but I feel like it really needs to like get out of, um, get out of the realm of pages and podcasts and we need to like get out out there we need to meet up with people we need to you know we need to schedule talks we need to schedule meetups we need to have people actually coming together in physical space uh so we can start to kind of like grow the network in a different kind of way and there are already so many people doing that but i think black and green uh has not had the opportunity to do that very much in recent years and so we're like really wanting to do that so kids let's have a talk real quick (laughs) If you're in college, universities have funds available for speakers. This is an important point. This is an important point because it's been missed. You know how people are getting fired up at Berkeley and people are getting trashed and all this stuff. And like everybody's like, well, Nazis can speak here and it's this whole thing. We can't cancel it. Those funds aren't just for Nazis and fascists. Thank God. Fortunately, if you have a student group, you can get money from the university to bring in anarchist or primal anarchist or rewilding speakers and things like that it doesn't so how would one do that they would find the person at their university that handles those things you form a group okay or you find a group Mm -hmm. uh i've been brought to universities by a wide assortment of groups um i don't know i mean like anything from a philosophy club to a history group to ecology groups things like that there is funding available uh, you get a couple people, you have some meetings, mm-hmm. you just hang out or whatever. It's usually, I think that even some of them, uh, the groups could only be, you know, like 51% or 75% students. So you could have people who don't go to the school, don't have any affiliation with the school in these groups. What a good way to build community too. Yeah. Go talk to people. Go talk to people. Go fucking talk to people. <laughs> what are you afraid of people for? Don't be so afraid of people. We are really afraid of people right now. Don't be afraid of people. Unless they're fascist, then you got to punch them. But <laughs> you should, still shouldn't be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. You should just punch them. Right. But it's a slightly different strategy. Anywho, go there. Go talk to the... I, I don't even remember who the people you should talk to are. But somewhere in the administration stuff and somewhere in the groups, in the organization of groups, you get the option for f- school funds for speakers. And, I mean, they can be pretty substantial. And all that money can help bring people like Natasha and I out, can bring John out. Uh any number of people, speakers, can be brought out. And then, 
you know, paying for airfare, paying for getting somebody there mm-hmm. and paying for a talk. And then any extra money goes to black and green, goes right. to any of these projects or any of these groups. And I mean, also, there's a ton of indigenous pipeline resistance movements, indigenous resistance movements. Absolutely. Get them out. Give right. them, get your school, to, if your school can give them two or $3,000, get your fucking school to give them two or $3,000. You're going into debt for it anyways. Right. Milk the fat boy. <laughs> this is, has been said. It is not a PC way of saying it. Anyway, <laughs> shape or form. But it has been said. And often has been a tactic. And for a long time, that's how a lot of the projects were funded, mm-hmm. was doing speaking tours. And we would love to do speaking tours. And if you can get universities to, to pay for travel and pay for all those expenses, then, oh, hey, there's a bookstore and an info shop in town that has no money. Right. We can go and we'll just tack those things on. We want to right. be doing more speaking. I mean, I think speaking is important because it, like, it brings people together in a physical space. I can't stress it enough right now. I just feel like that's really what's lacking. It's like we can have all these ideas and we can write about them and we can talk about them and we can talk about them on this podcast. But do you know how important it is to be able to look somebody in the eye when you're talking to them about something? That creates a completely different like space in the world, Yeah, which is what we're needing. We're, need- we're wanting to take all of this stuff like out of the world of theory and we're wanting to put it out into the world in some way that it can move forward like in a tangible way that there that we can work together to find a different way to exist in the world and also it adds context to the books it does it's not just like oh here's a thing to buy it's like oh here's 360 pages i could read or not read and we'll sit on a shelf i mean because that's another thing we're not like out for like book sales we don't want people to buy books and have no them sit no on a no shelf. that's not we, what this is about read the book Right. Pass it on to a friend. Like, whatever it takes. Like, there's reasons that these ideas are here. There's reasons that they're presented in this way. We're both writers. It's right. obviously very important to us. But, like, engage the concept. Engage. engage well, and what you and I really want to do, what we'd love to do, is be able to print a whole bunch of resources and give them out for free to people. Which is really, like, you know, have things available to people for, like, no cost. But to do that, you need to have, like, some amount of funds to make those things happen. <coughs> so... <laughs> but I mean, the ideal is that we're out there talking to people. We've got, you know, sort of this, we've got this sort of like action going and then we're able to give people resources that they can pass on to other people. Which we do have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. This We do have a lot of ideas on this. And it's not just let's print a newspaper and print a ton of them that only anarchists would be interested in reading. It's like, you know, let's print a ton of these things and get them out there. One of the many ideas that can be out there to black and green have the support financially and through the networks to help get it out. So mm-hmm. like we kind of need help making this bigger is what we need, we're saying. You like say. we're we're ready, right? We're chomping at the bit. Things have changed in our lives. We are like super hungry for this. We want to pull other people in so that we can make black and green bigger than what it has been. And I think that there's a need for it in the world right now. Yeah. And we're both very dedicated parents, but this is a lot of what we talk about. We talk about this you guys are just getting a little, little insights. Just like this is like a conversation we have, pushing ideas, and then occasionally, the biz. How do we get it out there? How do we? And that. And the know, and the thing is, there are lots of people working on this kind of stuff all over the world, working yeah. really hard on it. So, but I think what Black and Green can do because you've done such a good job of making a platform, right? A platform is really important because it gives people like a jumping off point. It gives people a meeting place, like whether that's. Uh, 
in uh, on the internet or whether that's in real life. It's like it, you've created something that can bring people together. And so it's not like we're saying like no one else is working on this. Tons of people are working on this. But I think Black and Green has a really unique opportunity uh, to help sort of make that a cohesive, more of a cohesive group or more of a cohesive movement like maybe it once was at one time you know before things sort of like took a dip shattered in days of yore in days of yore right yeah not to be too sentimental but things were different and also like if we had the momentum right now that we had in the early 2000s when all these like international riots were taking place while hong kong is burning bolivia is burning like all these different places are on fucking fire and there's like genuine climate change induced or like collapse of civilization induced raging battles going on to be able to have something to hand to that and say it's like here's another fucking story that matters and not just like some passive story and we're not talking about dan or quinn we're not talking about telepathic apes uh we're not telling you to go join the circus no we're not (laughs) no we're talking about active resistance we're talking about rewilding we're talking about and we've also been talking about this. There needs to be a better term than community. Yeah, I don't like the term community. We use the word community, just, but it's We're sucks. just lacking a different word. Yeah. We're lacking a different framework. Right. It's the it's really the only word we have to describe like a group of people coming together in some sort of collaborative effort, but it's community is very loaded at this point in yeah. like sort of an unpleasant way, I think. We're working on it. We'll get back to you. We'll keep We're inventing yeah. words over here. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. Back to the drawing board. <laughs> um, but yeah, so again, to come full circle, that also does mean more books. We are going to have a slew of books, I believe, coming out probably within the next year and then tumbling forward. We're hoping to like get the ball rolling right? so that more and more stuff is coming out. So we've got two books, actually, that are pretty much like absolutely ready to go we're waiting for like one more thing we're still doing some proofing and things right but um we have two books they're smoking hot smoking hot they're about to head to the press if you're if you're familiar with for wildness and anarchy which you should be by now uh the (laughs) the second edition you'll notice is radically different from the first there was a lot of room for improvement uh, there's a lot of ideas I had going into the first edition where I was already working with writing that was 10 years old. Mm. And I was like, well, it's been put out a million times. That it can just My allegiance with, with was with the original form, which is usually very badly proofread. Mm. Um, had a lot of typos and had a lot of issues and things that could have been ironed out. Whereas the new edition is working with stuff that was 20 years old at this point. Mm. It's at its farthest end. And saying, it, it can be better. Like, why would I not edit this stuff so it's a better reflection? Like, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't for the anarchist archives. This is an active book that people have engaged with, and I plan for people to engage with. That's a nice point. Yeah. You don't want it collecting dust on a shelf somewhere. No. What, yeah. I don't want it to be, it's like not like a relic for a library. It's like, this is an active book. But it's also a hard thing to do to go through, like, uh, previous work of your own and go through it with that sort of like critical eye like that can be a real sort of like ugh, kind it's, of a hard experience as a writer yes it was it's hard uh but also i've been doing zines now for um 26 years but particularly like i started species trader in 2000 and then species trader i did work with green anarchy and then with um some with green anarchist even uh, a number of different zines and things like that and then of course black and green review wild resistance 
I've gotten a lot better at an editor or as I've gotten a lot better as an editor mm. and a lot better at helping to like talk to 20 year olds and tell them how to do things. Mm. Well, your voice has really strengthened. Your writing voice has really strengthened over the years too. Thank you. <laughs> um, I have to agree because I have spent a lot of time going through it. It's, it's like, I mean, but, you've been writing the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it was hard to go through that and it's hard to be like, uh, come on kid, you can do better. But also like, it's that a little, kid was it a younger you me. Cringe. Yeah. Like, it was a younger me. Mm. I'm allowed to fix the things that I had done, and authors allowed to update things. So it's been updated. Um, but just even in the form and everything about it, like taking some things out, adding some things in, there's some things in there that I found that were too weak. So it's like, oh, I am the author. I can just change that. Yeah. It's a much better book, but it's also incredibly different. Um, so the first book, to go in line with saying, like, we don't just want to print a book again. If there's things about it that can be changed, if there's things about it that can make different, if it can make it a better book. We like updating things. We like because the story things. changes, right? Yeah. As time goes by, like stories can evolve. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what needs to be told. Can what needs to well. be told, right. So Origins, a John Zerzan reader, mm-hmm. it was the second book put out by Black and Green Press. It was 10 years ago. And um, I must say the layout job I did I should say, let me clarify. I think I've said this before. You can tell the history of my origins from coming from the DIY punk milieu to like, oh, a book should look like a book and be more readable Mm. and be more pragmatic about it through the layout of black and green books. Um, Species Trader 4 was in a lot of ways very zine-like. It worked. Uh, But then Origins for Wildness and Arcade, even Liminal, had more of like a... I'm getting used to this thing in uh-huh. terms of the layout. I could be a bit harder. For a while, this scenario was a lot better and Illuminal was a lot better, but Origins, the original layout, yeah, it wasn't done so well. So you That's a like, minor gripe. So you have liked the experience of coming to this book again and being able to format it like the way that you are able to now. Yeah, I think it also changes the way that it feels and is presented and also just like the overarching vibe of it. Like I'm, I'm actually... As a, as a nerd and as somebody who does a lot of layout, um, I think it looks a lot better. But also I think that that changes the presentation of a bit. And I think that helps in terms of being a physical book and in terms of it being a, a thing. I, see I things, agree. I think things as holes and I think as a whole, this one's better. Right. Uh, not that I didn't like the cover I did for the first one, but like I just like the entirety of the second one. But John got really excited about it when I brought it up to him. Um, I think we ended up dropping f- and adding four essays. Uh, so I think it's, I think so there it's the are same four new essays. essays. Yeah. So four dropped, four added. Um, nice. and we felt that between John and I, we felt it was a better presentation about exploring the concept of origins. Um, so, you know, I often get asked and people are always asked and it's specifically when people are looking at the table or like, where do I begin with a certain book when we're presenting multiple options? Um, origins is like the core of, of John's work. I mean, John's mm-hmm. stuff, he has like the origins work a lot of stuff he's been doing now is more like contemporary historical analysis mm-hmm. uh and then of course on top of all that stuff he'll just have his um i don't want to say commentary mm-hmm. i'm missing sorry john i'm missing the right word mm-hmm. um but just like it's kind of like analytical takes hot takes let's call him john's hot takes john's hot takes those are like the three kind of categories of john's writing this is the I mean, he's been at this a long time. Yeah, so I mean, he probably loved the opportunity to rework Origins right now, same along similar lines as you reworking For Wildness and Anarchy. Yeah. 
And I will say, like, when it comes to John's work, I think this is a great introductory point. If you're curious about anarcho-primitivism, the core of what it was is said as far as asking questions, that is origins. Mm. Like, here is John's questions about these origins. John's been doing it the longest. John is the founder of anarcho-primitivism. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Papa John is the girls call him. Aw. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so uh, this is a better version of it. I think this is a really good point. If people want to start with John's work, I think if, if you're looking for these particular questions instead of just, like, John's hot takes and historical, contemporary historical analysis, like... It's a really good place to start. Here's a really fucking good place to start. So to present it better after it's been sold out for some time now, mm. yes, I'm very excited about that. It really does look amazing, too. It's it going to be really exciting to, like, have it in solid form. Yes. Uh, and then the second book. Now, people from listening to the podcast are probably, people who have been following Black and Green are probably aware that Natasha has authored my favorite novella. Uh, it's called Liminal. I put it out five years ago. It was a small book. Mm-hmm. and It's a very small book. Yeah. But it was, it's, a, it's a fucking great read. It's a single-serving read. It's a little story. People love it. Like, it's been, the reception to it has been amazing. And it's a tearjerker. Uh, it's a very emotionally driven story. And it's perfect, though. It's a perfect as a novella because it's, it sets out to do one thing and does a thing. Yeah, I mean, I was really thankful that you wanted to publish it because, like, at that moment when I was writing it, I wasn't even thinking of doing anything with it. I just told you about the idea. (laughs) And then I wasn't really thinking of doing anything with it at all. But it it really did end up being a really nice fit for um, Black and Green, although the first piece of fiction that you had published, correct? Correct. So that's kind of exciting. That was a high five. High five. (laughs) So... But it has been sold out, correct? It has been sold time. out, and people have been waiting for it. And it's just <clears throat> felt that there, when it was coming back, it needed to be different than it was. But also that there was so much more of your work that had really encompassed how that book came about, how that story came about, and the way it's told and everything about it, uh, it could use more. Uh, right. So what we've ended up doing is instead of just reprinting Liminal, and instead of doing another book, it's like, let's put Liminal on in in this context and i think there's a lot of things that have happened in your life particularly over the last five years yeah and you're coming of age about uh <laughs> these ideas and writing and like you know going from the year of black clothing right through all these other kind of projects that you've had mm-hmm. and the growth you've had as a person and as a writer for sure you could see the voice rising yeah and it's it, funny i mean there were several years where kevin and i weren't talking to each other and in the those just happened to be extremely difficult years for me personally Both. um and so when we started talking again and we started sort of like sharing the things that we were working on i kind of came to the situation saying like i don't know i haven't really been like working on anything like i've just been more like journaling and i ended up writing a bunch of poetry during that time because i feel like it was just it was the way it was the way ideas were like coming out for me and then, so, in talking to Kevin about it, he was like, well, this is all really relevant information that, sh- you know, absolutely should be shared with people. So, again, thank you for, like, believing in that and wanting to put it out. But, I I mean, I do see now that we've put it all together into this format that, um, yeah, certainly it's kind of all in line with the work that I've been doing all along. Um, and I'm really glad that we're able to put Liminal out again in a different format because I think it works very well as a short story in an, uh, a larger volume. Um, but I did have a, a very difficult couple of years. Uh, I lost my mom to cancer. Um, we were very close, so that was very hard. Um, and I also went through a divorce. Uh, 
Um, so I came out of a very long relationship, like 17 years. And um, both of those things happened within like six months of each other. So um, it was a super intense period of time. And um, I think when we were thinking of titles for the this work, uh, Kevin came up with Rites of Passage. And it feels totally appropriate because I, I mean, absolutely... Uh, if we're talking about sort of like grief and mourning and how those things work, uh, this was absolutely a period of time that was a rite of passage for me. Going, I think really going from sort of being like, in my mind, a child to coming out the other side, being this like totally different iteration of myself um, and having gone through some very difficult things, like more of myself as like an adult woman. And so like what that means to me and... Um, yeah, so I think it's a perfect title. The book looks beautiful. I'm really excited we're putting it out. And the cover art. Tegan White. Oh my god. They are the perfect match for your writing. Well, they depict the world the way like my heart feels about the world. So to be able to have their artwork on the cover of this book, it's like it puts a visual to exactly how I feel about things. Check out their site. I think it's like TeganWhite.com. Or it's a, I think it is, yeah. If you find a Tegan White who isn't an artist, you're looking at the wrong one. But if yeah. you're looking at Tegan White... And we can like, put a link to it somewhere. Yeah. That's, somewhere, Kevin. <laughs> this looks like the artist that would be referenced here. That's the Tegan White. They have a store, too. They have some awesome prints, and they've done some really... They're actually a really good writer, too. Like, incredible. In fact, even following Tegan on Instagram is really pleasant. Because they write a lot of beautiful posts about things, and coupled with the artwork is just fantastic. Yeah, perfect cover. But Rites of Passage is a book that I am so excited about, and also, I mean, like bringing—I mean, poetry's been in black green stuff for a while, but not on the degree. It's a of bit a of a, it's a, bit of a is... departure, though. Too. I mean, I do, <laughs> I do feel like. Black and Green publishing some poetry is no small thing. It's it's like a bit of a step in a different direction. And um, I mean, I'm really thankful to everybody who supported me and read my work over the years. And uh, I feel like has really supported me in a lot of emotional, a lot of emotional work that comes with the kind of writing that I do. And so, um, I mean, I think, I guess what I want to say is like, even for people who might be like, mm, poetry, like to me, poetry is just this like one form of how like emotions come up, right? It's like a very, to me, to me, poetry at its best is just this like very raw form of like emotions being able to be expressed through words. Um, so I know, and I know that that is a departure. I know poetry is a departure from the norm here at Black and Green. So, you know, I just want to say sort of like, thank you for the creative support to everybody who's read Liminal and also followed my blogs and that kind of thing. Um, it's exciting to be, be able to put, as a writer, it's exciting to be able to put things out in like different formats and different ways. And so I'm, I'm really thankful for the, the support around that just from readers and everybody in general. I will say that I do also think though that pigeonholing into poetry is wrong. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, you're a poet. You're, you're a fucking fantastic poet, but you're a great... I say you're my favorite writer. You're my favorite writer. Um, like, that is really a, a really nice thing to say. But it's true. I've said it's all in the podcast. Like, But there, the, there's prose in there that's really good. There's storytelling that's amazing. And, I mean, I think that <clears throat> the idea of it is is that if we're focusing on the form, we're escaping the content of the book. And the, the book is Rites of Passage. It's broken into three primary sections. Right. There is liminal... And then there's a song of a Th- song of a thousand small things, which is poems and right. prose. Right. And then there's Lamilla, which is the section that is encompassing your mom's 
cancer diagnosis and going through the treatments and then ultimately right. when she dies. Right. I ended up doing a lot of writing around the time, just sort of like personally in kind of a journal format um, around going through the experience with my mom of her, um, you know, being diagnosed with cancer and then going through the treatment process and then ultimately losing her. Um, so that writing was like, I felt like really raw and, um, and honestly it was just more of like me writing things down so I didn't go crazy. Um, but I think because so many of us go through these experiences of like love and loss, obviously that's something we all go through, um, that there is something really powerful in being able to like share that, that very like vulnerable writing with people. So I'm like a little bit nervous about it, but I'm really thankful that we're doing it. You should be nervous about it because it's excellent. But also, I mean, I think the thing is, is that the idea can be, or the tendency can be to like pigeonhole things. So it's like poetry, prose, personal writing. Right. We don't need to do that. There's not a bit of this book that isn't completely dripping and like anti-civ everything. Absolutely, because I'm 100% anti I'm dripping in anti with anti-civ. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, my, my experience in the world is to just be absolutely in opposition to the way that we're living and through through just per like my personal rewilding work and journey just coming to the point of being like holy shit like we need to wake up and we need to help each other do that we need to say like hey i'm gonna hold your hand in this we can do this together um but there is a there's another way to live yeah. You know. For anybody who's thinking that there's like the soft pedaling or something like that, lest we forget, Liminal centers around a woman who is going to destroy infrastructure and none of the novel is in all any way, shape, or form a moral or ethical quandary about whether or not that destruction should happen. No, no, I'm not confused about what I want here. <laughs> the, this poetry isn't necessarily like, uh, it, it's not the like roses and... Um, I mean, roses are red and violets are blue. And yes, and and um, civilization is great to destroy too. It's like more of that type of of um, genre. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I don't think there's any. Nobody's gonna read this and be like confused about why it fits into black and green. No, it's no. in the canon. It is and figuratively even, and literally. But I mean, the thing is, even the experience of like going through my mom becoming. Um, ill and then going through the process of losing her like that for sure like she died of a civilized disease she she died from cancer and like I think so many of us are going through these experiences right now and um, and still I just feel like in our culture like you're not allowed to talk about the hard things like we're not allowed like even within the world of like cancer you're not allowed to look at each other and go wow this is really fucked up the way we're living is causing our own bodies to like um, run amok and, and like attack ourselves like we're nobody you're not allowed to say so many things and you're not allowed to be like my mom died and it was fucking horrible and um it was the worst thing that ever happened and I feel like a complete like orphan and even though I'm 37 years old like I miss her every day like you're just you're there's so many things you're not allowed to express because we're supposed to keep ourselves in these little in this little mold that like civilization needs us to be kept in so I mean I think it's really it's really valuable and it's really important to be able to write about things that are like painful and hard and to say like well this fucking sucks it's civilization did this to me and to to call it what it is which you were exceptionally brave with and like we've, we've talked about i mean there's a lot of things that i've been wrestling with for a long time that i felt like i had an obligation to kind of like keep to myself uh, well we and, all feel that way because civilization tells us we have to do that 
You have to be fine, Kevin. Civilization tells us you have to be fine. You have to keep going. Don't talk about things that are hard. Don't look behind the curtain. Keep going. But I mean, that's that's exactly where it is. When we talked about earlier, talking about like civilization presents like it's like the trial. You present two options and be like, well, you've made your choice. And then we're like, well, I'm satisfied. I had my choice today. I am an individual, so therefore I will take on the world as an individual. You lost your mother. That's on you. Like that's not like we've removed all ceremony and sanctified it to like nothing and it's either religious or it's not right and it's like given this space or it's given none right but we don't you still have to pay your rent you still have to pay your bills you still have to go to work i mean you have to do all these things in fact it was really horrifying to me in the process of losing her like i like i so and anybody who's lost somebody or like gone through a big upheaval like this probably can share this sentiment is like you can be in your worst moment. Like, you're just ravaged with, like, pain and grief or whatever it is. And, like, you're still somehow expected to keep yourself, like, upright in the framework of what civilization expects you to be. So that might be going to work or going to the grocery store. Or, like, you're you're just, like, expected. There's no space in our society to, like, collapse. Like, we don't have that. We don't... Most of us don't have... And I know we don't like the word community, but most of us don't have a community that will really, like, hold us while that happens. And so, like, you find yourselves in these moments of, like, I'm ruined right now, and I have to continue to go through the motions of being fine to continue to participate in this in this civilization that, like, doesn't give two shits about how we're actually doing. It just, it just needs to, like, eat our productivity. Yeah. I mean, that's... A massively important point. And that's obviously something that you and I have discussed at, at length. And I think I'm going to be talking about, we'll be talking about more on the podcast. There's more to be coming out about it in general. But, I mean, it's it's a thing that we kind of take for granted. I mean, like, uh, I've, I've talked on in terms of books, like Stanley Diamond's been a huge influence on me. Mm-hmm. Paul Shepard's been a huge influence on me. Shell's Clendenning's been a huge influence on mm-hmm. me. All these people talk about civilization and mental health. Right. Um, and it's it's been this kind of thing um, it's worth just mentioning now, and there's like a lot more to be said about it. Sure. A kind of like a critique that gets thrown, or not even a critique. It's a, like a critique in the sense of like throwing shit at the wall. Um, like people will say stuff like, well, if you're against civilization, what's going to happen to people who aren't able bodied? What's going to happen to people who are mentally ill and all these things and, and sick? This is a big question we got all, all the, the time. time. And it's almost always with the thinking of like, ha ha, I got you. Right. Well, like, we're talking about what, we, we, this narrative. We're talking about, again, to use the word community. And this has been something I've talked about extensively in Gathered Remains. Like, hooked on a feeling society without strangers. Like, the, the role of what an engaged in an active community looks like. What that can mean for an individual. And what that means in terms of healing. Which healing and grief work is naturally a huge part of the work that you do. Right. Um, like, we're, we're missing the point. Like, if you're talking about having a community that you actually cares for you. A community that has knowledge that is rooted in the land, that is rooted in healing, and rooted in the basic understanding that horrible things can happen to you. And do happen. And do happen. Sad and horrible things do happen in life. Yeah. But when you're part of an intact society or an intact uh, community, you are... I think I cannot find a better word to use than, like, held. Like, you're held in as part of this... Um, network as part of this framework where like you are allowed to feel things fully and your community sort of like picks up those 
picks up those pieces while you're doing that, right? And yes. I was very fortunate in the in the years that I lost her and went through these difficult things is I did have a lot of people who loved me and helped me through those times and held my hand and held space for me. And I thought many times, like, if I didn't have the, these types of people around me, like, what would have happened to me? But that's a perfectly common experience. We're very isolated. We're, we're very, we're very, um, we're very alone a lot of the time. And that's a, very scary. Yeah, we don't, but I mean, like, even that, is like still, we don't permit a larger conversation about what takes a certain person. It's like... No, we don't. I mean, um, you know, my brother overdosed on heroin 20, almost 20 years ago, and it was like... I'm so sorry you lost him. I'm sorry you lost your mom. Thank you. But, I mean, like, the... There, there wasn't any community at that time, even though it would become one of the biggest killers in the United States. Right. Uh, it's an opiate addiction, like, because it was ahead of the time, because nobody was prepared to deal with it, and because nobody in my family was going to deal with it. It was, like, just this thing. It's like, oh, well, that's a thing, and that just, you know, Well, there's so take much a little bit stigma, of time. And there's so much judgment around addiction issues, which is, like, absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Yeah. Because, of course... Of course we have addiction issues in our culture. Like, we are suffering. We are isolated. We're separated from one another. We're hungry for things that we're not being fed. Like, of course addiction is a thing. So to stigmatize that is absolutely criminal. Yeah, especially when you're robbed of community, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And you're you're thrown into all these conditions in which your basic storyline is, well, you've made your choices because you had your options and you chose them. This is the only way things are going to go. I mean, like, we're dealing with massive mental health crisis. And I mean, I think oh, like, yes, I, want, I want to be discussing more is, like, my own issues with, like, dealing with, like, very severe depression and being pretty rampantly suicidal for most of my life. Which is a big deal to say because I don't think you've really talked about that publicly at all before. No, I haven't at all. Um, but I mean, like, but again, it comes down to that thing of, like, dealing with these things individually. And, like, feeling like this is something that you you have to carry and you have to just, like, make it work. Um, and it makes it so it's like, you know, when I get people asking these kind of questions, it's like I've had uh, pretty heavy things that I've been contending with. And on top of that, I know I've mentioned on the podcast before, <clears throat> like, I've got extensive Lyme disease. And so all those things dovetail in a way that I, I get people who are asking me, it's like, well, what is civilization like, what's life like if, without civilization if you're disabled? And, like, my health goes up and down so radically. Like, for the past two years, 90% of the time, I can only get by if I'm using a cane. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in so much pain that it can be hard to stand up uh, upright for long periods of time or even mm-hmm. a half hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been very severely wounded by civilization. Uh, I've been very severely wounded by all these things. And there's there's nothing there. There's no recourse for it. Like, I still have to work. I still have to figure out all these other things. I still have to do all this shit that, like, I, I keep hitting thresholds where I physically can't do it. And it's not even, like, to the point where I'm saying, like, there's not even room to say, like, what was mentally a possibility. Like, and it also dealing with severe depression induced by the fact that I'm going to be four years old and I, I've i had years where I, w- I wasn't able to physically pick up my daughters. Right. Uh, I mean, like, these are complicated things that, like, people keep thinking, like, Oh, we got you. The reality of it is that civilization is doing a fucking shit job when it comes to health and well-being. It's not an interest. It's not something it's we can It's doing a very party. good job of saying to us, we don't... Civilization doesn't give a fuck about us. It doesn't yeah. give a fuck about how we're feeling. It doesn't give a fuck about how we're doing. All It just needs... It, eat, it eats us. Civilization eats us. It just, like, it uses us. It needs us to be cogs in the system. That's it. 
we're not really allowed to feel. We're not really allowed to say when we're not doing well. We're not really allowed to do any of those things because the 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 overarching goal is to like keep civilization itself moving, right? So we're just lost in the shuffle. And then it's like there are some people, and I mean, there is like a complete hierarchy of healthcare access. Oh, absolutely. And so it's like you know. Well, a lot of times it comes down to people being like, well, I have access to these medications. I have access to these doctors. Like, we're not talking about the core things. We're not talking about the endemic things. We're not talking about the reasons that we wind up in these positions. And again, do we want the ham and cheese or do we want the quesadilla? Which which one of these things do we want? Because so often these kind of questions get presented by people who are presented with those options. And for most of the world, that's not going to be the case. I mean, like, you have to look at civilization on an international scale you have to look at what it looks like for a syrian child who's grown up right. in nothing but warfare and you have to look at the child in afghanistan and iraq iraq and places like that this had nothing but like depleted uranium all around them and i mean like and there you can go back to you know the first gulf war in the early 1990s two generations that were born in periods of just being surrounded by warfare and surrounded by depleted uranium. Right. Like, you look at the fact that the Makitadors in Mexico, the children, the, the toxic chemicals raised around that were causing children to be born with, without brains or brains on the outside. Right. Like, we're not being presented with good options, and you have to take right. the whole into the, the entirety of it. Like, we're looking at the health and well-being of upwards of 8 billion people right now when we're talking about civilization and the impacts it's having. Right. And whether or not, like, so many people in a first-world nation have some kind of act which i don't is, is anybody defending a healthcare system i'm not <laughs> i don't think anybody's like i've never met anybody I think who's we like can say it's flawed yeah like, unless you know somebody who's rich with good private insurance and even then people still fucking complain about going to the doctors they can oh, acknowledge yeah. it they'll defend it but again it's like you know it's usually for an elective surgery or something but like this, the, the way that these things work it all comes back to this narrative you've been given choices you're being taken care of be afraid of what's outside the walled garden because it's going to be bad. You're going to be left to the wolves. We're already left to the wolves. The proverbial wolves. The proverbial actual wolves, wolves because never actual wolves anybody. are awesome. Actual wolves are amazing. And yeah. they have not out to get people. But even the narrative of like you're left to the wolves is completely constructed by civilization. Like, yeah. like we're not talking about actual wolves. Actual wolves have never hurt a person. No. So it's like everything that we're handed is just this like false narrative. Yeah. Which is why... We need to be pushing that there's another narrative, which is why we need to be able to respond to these things and to be able to say, like, well, the the answer isn't how is uh, a primal anarchist or anarcho-primus going to heal whatever ailment you're presenting. It's like, well, look at the entirety of it. Look at the nature of community. Look at the nature of society. Look at the nature of how any of these things are handled. And then also, we got to get our heads on our ass and stop thinking that we live in a society where these things are being taken care of. Right. And even if you're not willing to, like, look beyond the first world aspects of it, like, you do have to take into account, like, what it's like if just one step away. I mean, I saw a headline, I think yesterday, um, like, uh, preventable uh, birth, like, issues or crises, things like that. Mm-hmm. They're doubled amongst blacks versus whites. Mm-hmm. I've like, that. I mean, I've, I've talked about this in a number of writings. It's like that, that thing has come up many times. Like, you yeah. don't have to go very far no. in any given direction to be like the narrow bridge on which we, like the tightrope of believing that civilization has solved any of these problems. Well, it's in every headline. It's higher. And this higher. morning I read a headline about uh, it's a local family whose son, or no, their adult son, is in prison right now 
for breaking and entering into a church, but he's also suffers from severe like mental health, um, I guess, issues, you would say, right? And so they were saying when they, they know when their son is not taking his medication, these things can happen. But now their son is in prison for this issue. The mental health part of it isn't being addressed. He's, he's in solitary confinement some of the time because of the mental health issues. And so this family is panicking, like, well, how do we help our son? Now he's thrown into the prison system. Like, what's going to happen to him there? And that is, like, such a common story. That's such a common story. So unless we start talking about these things a little more openly, which lots of people are doing now, like, and I'm so thankful for, but unless we start talking about our, like, personal experiences and reaching out to one another and saying, like, hey, I know exactly how that feels, or, like, I've gone through this, and we start more and more taking the stigma off of these things, like, it's such a vicious cycle. Um, And if there's 8 billion people, there's 8 billion ways domestication can break you. Right. So, I mean, like, that's why, again... That's why we need a different story. That's why right. we need a different narrative. That's why right. the work that we're doing is the work that we're doing. Like, we're talking about a way of, like, civilization, which is just always going to collapse. It's always going to it's be pushing. Always it's always collapsed. Al- always collapsed, and it's always collapsing. Right. You're talking about, like, stop seeing it as an invulnerable thing. See it as an ecological system. See how it works. See how it functions. See how it breathes. See how it consumes, because... It consumes everything. And it's cyclical. Yeah. You can only consume so much before there's nothing left to consume, right? Yeah. So, like, we're definitely always playing with that line. So stop thinking that it's going to be here forever and start seeing it as, like, The weak thing that it is. The weak thing that it is. And then start realizing, well, our relationship with the world can't be dictated by this fucking parasite. Right. No, it can't be. Like, even a parasite knows not to be as endemic as civilization. Because it'll burn itself out. Yeah. I mean, civilization, in effect, burns itself out over and over and over again. Yeah. It's just right now, it is so large and, like, global that that is kind of, like, the difference in how it has been before, right? Like, throughout history. But that doesn't mean that it's it works any better than it ever did. It no. doesn't mean it's any more successful than it ever was. In fact, it's way worse. Right. It's way worse. Right. And if it falls, it's like the, I mean, if, you know, you're talking about like if there were a small civilization and you had all these Mississippi and Ohio River Valley civilizations that existed in the Americas where we're contact. Right. And they just like kind of rise and fall. Right. Because you go, oh, you know what? This isn't working or we've burned ourselves out or we've used all our resources. And then you move on back to a, back to a, to an actual physical space that will allow you to live in a different way. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the question is now is, like, as we're as we're coming to this point of saying, like... Like, I think it's very important for us to say, like, we're already living in collapse, right? So, like, from that standpoint, as we're starting to say, like, this isn't working. I think we need to walk away from this or whatever it is we're going to do with it. Um, like, what are we walking to? And I yeah. ask, say this, we talk about this all the time. I keep saying, well, what does that look like? It's like, yeah, we can theorize about it. We can say all of these ideas around it. But, like, I want to know what is going... What's that going to look like, Kevin? How am I? How are we going to feed our mess of kids that we have? Like, how does it work? How does it work? And that's what I think we're really interested in moving towards now is like using this platform and bringing a network of people together. Is like, okay, well, let's really visualize that. Like, let's let's make that. Let's move towards that. And there are people already doing it. We just are wanting to sort of like use our own platform for bringing some of that together. Yeah. And also in line with that, we can also say it's like just because some jackass in Cahokia was like, I really love these walls. 
I really fucking love these walls. It didn't stop that civilization from collapsing. And that that person had the ability to walk on and try and get another society all hyped up on walls just didn't work. Right. (laughs) Or if it worked, it was like very temporarily and burned itself out. We were able to reject this. We're able to reject this. That is well within our uh, line of abilities, right? We don't have to say like, well, we were born into this and now we're stuck with it forever. No. That's not how anything works. Yeah. Fucking monarch doesn't stop for a while. No. Just need different perspectives. Right, exactly. So, uh, I, I, this is a long way of saying, I'm very fucking excited about your work. I'm very excited about Rites of Passage. I'm very excited about Origins and everything that we've got going on in Black and Green. I hope everybody else is, like, very excited about it, too. But we're, we're going to have a fundraiser going for Origins and Rites of Passage at the same time. Um, they'll be, like, posted up within days. Uh, they go on for 30 days. At 30 days, it takes 10 days after that for the funds to be released. As soon as the funds are released, we're ready to go to print. Uh, everything is already pretty much is worked out and ready to go. Those two books will be done at the same time and shipping at the same time. So we've ironed out some kinks mm-hmm. in terms of the fundraising process. But we really can use help, really use support in everything we do, particularly the fundraiser. But like uh, the support page on Black and Green has all kinds of ways to help us out. But the biggest thing is talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Engage with it. Uh, if you have abilities, if you don't want to talk to us about things that you'd like to help us push and pursue, by all means, please do so. Um, and also, then, if you just want to talk to us, send us an email. Yes. We'll do our best. We will do our best. We'll it, do- m- it might not be immediate, but we would love to talk to people about things. I fully understand immediate return. <laughs> I'm not always immediate reply. Right. And if I have not but gotten back to you in some time... Write me again. Yeah, absolutely. Don't stop. It's not that we don't want to talk to you. Yeah. It's just life has been very full. Too full. <laughs> Too full. Too full in many ways. But, uh, you know, check out the books that are out there. There are some new shirts on there as well. Mm-hmm. And there will be a lot to go. Also, um, I have a Patreon. Uh, it's in the support tabs. It's all, all that shit's there. Uh, I'm working on, like, going back to working on my book about missionaries uh, as Which agents is of conversation. amazing. All of the, all, I keep saying to Kevin, like, what's, what's the mission here? Like, what are you trying to say? Horrible word, but. Okay, well, scrap <laughs> it. We need some new words for things. We were just talking about missionaries. We got to, like, find so, Okay, but, like, what word do you want to use? Yeah. I, we'll I don't know. To this we, don't have, we don't have good language for it. But I keep saying, like, what is it, right? What are you trying to say here? This book has all the pieces. I agree. I am, like so eager to share this thing and i know i've put it out there a number of times like how should i release it in different kind of ways and things like that Mm because this book is going to be massive very large Mm -hmm. i'm trying to figure out ways that i think i can streamline it but at the same time like i owe it to these societies i owe to all these people that have been impacted by civilization by colonization Mm -hmm. to tell as much of the story as i can and the story is about missionaries as agents of colonization talk about the origin of religion nationalism and all these things but really like how how the colonization is innate to civilization and what that has meant for indigenous peoples the world over. Mm-hmm. So to tell as many of these stories as possible, I'm trying to figure out better ways to like kind of give some of that information out. But I had ideas about like serializing it and things like that. But realistically, even though it's going to be a very large book, it is not a reference book. No. It's not built that no. way. It's built around trying to tell the stories about uh, these different encounters and also to tell the story about what a world without God look like. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's like a very complicated big thing, but it's meant to be read 
and it is definitively written to be read through. Right. Like, you know, I mean, I, and I mean, the writing is refer- so engaging. I mean, even if it's, it's extremely long, it really is like you've figured out a way to tell these stories. So it is, um, it, I mean, it's, a, it's a easy to read. It, the information is not easy to digest, but it is, um, it's beautifully written. Thank you. <laughs> Such praise from a great writer. Uh, but I'm still trying to figure out other ways to do that. And one of the things I'm thinking about doing is something I probably would end up doing Patreon, through Patreon or something. I don't know. Uh, I want to be compiling a list of indigenous assaults on missions and missionaries. Uh, I haven't, I've been kind of like gathering that a little bit, but I've been seeing a lot of it. It's going to be a very extensive thing, but just like even in terms of like things that I've posted on Twitter or something like that, like I do these like little dives, Mm -hmm. uh, like little rabbit holes you fall down whenever you're doing the kind of research I have to do for this book. Right. Uh, But like fascinating things, things I think are fascinating or things I think are very telling about civilization, even in like minutia, but the resistant element of it is obviously a huge aspect of it. And like the fact that like, even though I'm writing this book about missionaries as agents of colonization, I don't want to ever pretend like there's this passive population that was just like, oh, here comes this God idea. It's like, that never happened. Right. Never once did that happen. Right. It was like warfare. Straight right. up. Right. Warfare across the board. Evasion. Warfare. Things like that. Um, and just eradication. Uh, so I really want to, like, keep telling that story. And I've put out a couple shirts to do black and green mm-hmm. that have been about attacking missionaries and things like that that are great. Uh, I'd like to be doing more of that, but I'm trying to figure out some way to collect that information um, and maybe it would be an appendix in the book or something like that, or maybe it'd just be some accompanying thing. I trust it's going to continue growing forever because there's all kinds of, like there was a lot of times where missionaries were killed. Most yeah. of the yes. time missionaries were killed and they were killed very brutally, which is an understatement to say that they were long deserved or very deserved. And deaths. tell me a little bit more about why you've moved towards focusing on this idea of missionaries because they're, they are like agents of colonization. Yeah. Like, missionaries are, so as I said, it's like I'm a culture materialist. Like, the reason that civilizations have expanded is because they have to. They need resources, be it people, be it, um, like, actual products or, or even components of products. Because civilization uh, has an enormous appetite. Yeah, and it's like cult yeah. personality. Like, again, cult personality was an offshoot of this book. I had been calling it Of Gods and Country. I'm toying with the title a bit more because I don't think that that really sums it up as well. Mm-hmm. Currently, Scars of a Hungry God. Mm-hmm. is where I'm at. Sure but that love. might change. Right. Uh, but for right it's now, work, that's, that's the working title. It's progress. a working title. Though. It's a working title. Right uh-huh. uh, but Cold Personality is the offshoot of that. And it's to talk about the nature of, I mean, like, uh, the book is about ayahuasca. It is about the, the murder of Olivia Arvalo, uh, who is um, a Shipapo Konobo uh, Anyanya plant healer who was killed by a Canadian uh, who was seeking ayahuasca and wanted to bring it back to Canada and just, like, universalize it. So there's all these different elements of that story reflected in this like it's a story about extraction i mean it's like people are like i don't know if i want to read a book about ayahuasca it's like ayahuasca is just one of the things right. to tell the story of ayahuasca you have to tell the story of guano you have to tell the story of rubber you have to tell the story of all of these aspects and particularly slavery which throughout the entire americas throughout the entire world like that's how europe which was dying around 1400 a.d uh that's how it sustained itself. It threw its dying body into the ocean and just like tore apart anything mercilessly right. uh, to sustain itself. And it 
the I unfortunate mean, it, aspect of history is that it found things, but it's the story of commodification and turning living things into products. Yes, which is what civilization is very, very good at. But nobody speaks that way. Right. So the reality of it is, is that the story we tell this comes down to the narrative, and religion is the narrative that we had manifest destiny, all these different aspects of it. So it's like when we're talking about missionaries, we're not just talking about you know a couple assholes here or there or something like that. This is a massive force that has happened throughout the world and every colonizer every conquistador all these people had been driven by what they could find considered this like divine right of conquest because they were bringing good and it's a story that we tell and it's a story that we continually have tried to tell indigenous people but Mm. it's almost never taken and like it continues to this day i mean the book opens uh in the mid-1950s with the the murder of uh five missionaries by uh, the Warani of Ecuador. Mm. Uh, and that was a moment that really like lit the fire under the post-World War II gas, oil-infused world of conquest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a, that was like a really important point. And it's like this kind of great moment of indigenous resistance, but I mean, like it kicked off this whole, this whole missionary zeal. Mm-hmm. And it's been a way of trying to make a philanthropist of the frontline conquistador and the frontline conquering. Mm. So... What ends up happening is that as soon as the world is aware to any degree about the conquest that is taking place, the destruction that's taking place through the frontier, through the advance of civilization, you sugarcoat it by saying, well, we're out to help these people. We're out to save souls. Give one dollar, you know, one penny a day you can sponsor an orphan child. And it's like, we don't need to talk about how that child's orphaned or why that child can't eat. Mm. But for so little, you can do so much. Right. And it's a way of really pacifying uh, the nature of civilization and pacifying the actual consequences of civilization. And the reality of it is, is that missionaries have been agents of colonization, like the Society of Jesus, which was one of the primary primary initial colonizers of the Americas, was active landholders. Mm-hmm. And they ran haciendas, which mm-hmm. were, uh, and all these like um, uh, plantations. I mean, they ran slave plantations and all these things. Right. Uh, and they owned the actual land. They were colonizers. Uh, that carries on in all these different forms to the point where missionaries become the justification for corporate interest and for government interests and things like mm. that. And that's why you end up with things like 10,000 villages and plowshare crafts right. where you can go and you feel like you're buying this free trade, fair trade thing. And that you're helping the people that have made these things. You're helping the people who have made these things. Is the narrative. Who have made local crafts to have taken local timber and stone and things like that to craft little monuments to Jesus. Like, oh, they just love Jesus. <laughs> no, they don't. This is for this. Oh, there's those places, these like liberal havens are run by the Mennonite central committee, which is one of the largest missionary organizations in the entire world. And like right now we're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we're, like in their area. Oh yes. Just, the hive. Are, we're in the hive, <laughs> but like these things just go on in, in broad daylight. And only very rarely do we hear about it. Like when John Chow was killed by the Sentinelese, that made the headlines. For the right. most part, it doesn't make the headlines. But in terms of, of civilization, this is where that narrative matters. This is like the end of the road. Our narrative is that we're spreading these things and that most the of The gospel, is, if you will. We're spreading the gospel. And mm-hmm. also we've accepted the reality that civilization is here and that any indigenous society is going to have to naturally contend with that. So it's better if they play along. It's better if we bring them into the fold and we're doing it. If we say we're doing it for their good then there's some degree of us that believes it. And, and then we can feel okay about it, too. We can feel... Well, not only do we feel okay about it, the bigger thing is we turn a blind eye to it. Right. Indigenous people in general are barely on the radar for most people. And it's only... Oh, yeah. It's taken... 
extreme measures, even like within contemporary society, like indigenous struggles and indigenous resistance, like particularly in the anti-pipeline, anti-extraction and stuff, mm-hmm. like in the past few years, it's been getting a lot more attention within radical milieus, but the left in particular has never been very friendly right. towards indigenous societies and indigenous interests. And you can see, like, I, I always point back to uh, Ward Churchill did a book uh, in their early, I think it was the early 80s, uh, called Marxism and Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's like talking about, it's like, you guys are talking about industrialism. We don't want any of your shit. Mm-hmm. Like, it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. And it was leftist critiques of indigenous societies. Right. Like, these are backwards people. We need progress. Uh, there's all kinds of fucked up shit within the left that... Well, like, I think the truth is out. of that some somewhat is that like you've talked about that we are all complicit. Like if we are just going about our business and living this way, like we are all to some degree complicit in this in all these atrocities, right? And so that is like a very unpleasant to look at. Like you have to be in a place of really being able to like strip yourself bare and be like, I I am participating in this. Like I am part of these atrocities, right? So that's really hard for people to do. And so it's easier to just not pay any attention at all. It's mm-hmm. easier to just turn a blind eye because yeah. it's like it's a painful process. But you also realize, too, I mean, if you pay attention to what it takes for a missionary to try and convert somebody, even if they are actively trying, which in most of these cases, they have these mission encampments and nobody even learns language and people just die. Mm-hmm. Um, you realize what it takes to break that hunter gatherer part of yourself, that that whole part of yourself that these communities never had to think about. Right. They're like under assault, but they understand that they're under assault. They understand that like something is coming to try and like mercilessly, mercilessly assault and tear apart everything there is. You realize it's like looking at wild animals. It's like, right. you know, I've, I've been black and interview wild resistance. I interviewed Gabe Bradshaw. I've talked about Gabe Bradshaw's work a lot. And you're talking about it in terms of uh, PTSD amongst captive populations, wild animals. Like, when you look at these instances, when you look at intact communities and what ideological premises there are, what's taking place to try and break these people, that's, this is what it takes. And if you understand what it takes to try and break them, you'll understand the process that's happening in your own life. So, like, the story isn't just about, like, this is indigenous people missionaries. This is a story about how domestication functions. Exactly. This is a story about how one narrative became the overarching narrative and how that has impacted all life and how it continues to impact all life. And essentially, you can't get to the bottom of this story without saying there's something wrong with the stories we're telling ourselves. There's something wrong with the narratives we're given, the narratives we have accepted. And that's why this book is the book. Right. And I think it's really important to talk about and also it's still taboo to talk about religion in certain ways, right? Like it's still a little bit taboo to say the things that you're saying sacrilegious even you could say sacrilegious so um i mean thank you for being willing to do that work i'm sure that it has it finds you in some um contentious conversation sometimes because it is still very taboo to say or to criticize religion or to do to say those things outright but it's obviously very important to say because organized religions are uh you know the crux of um, civilization, really. I mean, they're a method of control and a method of acquiring power and um, and then, like, spreading that around. So, you know, thank you for being willing to do that work. Thank you. You're welcome. But yes, you can also, again, you can support that through Patreon. It's a big <laughs> help. It does take a lot of time and energy and money. Um, 
I can I really appreciate any support. But that's the primary thing that's going towards and rising black and green up, rising up all these things just expands our ability to really get into these details and get into these situations. Um, there's a lot more I want to talk about. Yeah, I feel like we could talk all day. I feel like we could. <laughs> Uh, but we do have to end it here, and I think next time we're going to be able to get more into. I want you to read some poems and read some stuff from Rites of Passage. Right. Well, we've sort of been saving it. Like we just haven't had time to do a podcast, so like we've been saving up all these ideas. We're ready to go now. We kind of mess of kids that we have to work. We right. have a lot of kids together. We've 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 acquired like a large family suddenly together. So, um, but yeah, we're now you can expect uh, more podcasts going. Also, like this was a big jumping off point to do this together. This is our first. This is our first one together. So first exciting. Many. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so uh, also Natasha is going to have a web page up very soon. We'll have a new It's in the works. It's in the work. And Mm -hmm. there'll be a lot more about the other work that you do as far as work that has a lack of a better name. There's no good word for it. (laughs) (laughs) You need intuitive body work, healing. I don't know. Oh, I created all the words. There's 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 some herbalism going on. There's some, I teach classes sometimes. So um, that'll all be, all that kind of stuff will be up on the website. But again, we need some new terms for things. We do. I feel uncomfortable with a lot of the words that we use. But you do fantastic work. Thanks. Very necessary work. Um, And the writing and everything feeds all into it. But like, Let's just say there will be a lot more of it, and we'll yeah. keep working on the terms. And you will have a Patreon as well. I will have a Patreon as well. So if anybody wants to support that, I would literally be like overwhelmed with gratitude. Um, as part of this sort of like transition in our lives, uh, I've kind of like jumped off. I was working with children for a few years as a teacher, and um, so it's been a, it's been a big jumping off point to say let's try to do this full time and you know, really, like, make this happen right now, which is really exciting for both Kevin and I, but, like, also scary because it's a transition and um, it's a departure from the lives that we had been living in in some ways. So, um, yeah, we're, I mean, we're obviously, like, blown away by uh, any support that we receive, pretty much. Um, and we're really excited about what life looks like right now and um, really excited about where it's going. And black and green is absolutely our focus, you know, our family and then working on black and green right now so please give us your ideas get involved let us know like what you've been wanting to see or what you're wanting like we're just we're really wanting to open up the conversation right now and bring people in yeah and there's a whole mess of writing in the works yeah so thank you everybody yes thank you so we'll end it there and uh we will talk to you all soon thanks for listening uh all past episodes as well are at primalanarchy.org and blackandgreenpress.org is the website for the main thing. All the websites are interlinked. Wildresistance.org is the journal. KevinTucker.org is my webpage. If you go to one, you'll find them all. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody. Just I haven't really gotten a chance to formally say thank you for supporting Liminal. And thanks to Kevin for publishing it. And just, um, you know, I haven't really gotten a chance to like vocalize these things. So I just appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about where we're going. Pleasure is literally online. (laughs) We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.